across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's another day and another dollar for the administration from hell. The newspapers this morning are full of the state of confusion that we find ourselves in after the Prime Minister's ill-advised trip to Exeter yesterday where he inadvertently got the Covid restrictions wrong when asked about them. The growing clamour for a rebellion in Parliament has increased over the new powers that Boris wants over us. Already, no one knows whether they can have a drink, who they can have a drink with, which parts of the country are restricted to those who can't have a drink and then when those restrictions are likely to end... Or indeed, begin. It's not really surprising Boris is confused. It's Prime Minister's questions today, and no doubt Keir Starmer will be sticking it to him. And he's then got a press briefing to organise with the Brothers Grimm, Witty and Valance, uh, whose firing has been called for already uh, by some backbench senior MPs from the Tory party. On top of that, he could still be defeated by his own backbenchers in the House of Commons later on. Quite a busy old day for the Prime Minister. Uh, I predict he's going to be pretty exhausted. As I said to Julia Hartley Brewer, I don't know what I can do if I get a train to Newcastle. Can I get out and have a drink at the bar in the railway station? Am I allowed to have some lunch as well with it? Am I allowed to invite somebody that I don't know to sit with me? Am I allowed to invite somebody I do know to sit on and down the table? Nobody knows the answer to any of these questions. 0344 499 1000. First up today, though, far more importantly, we're talking presidents and vice presidents. Donald Trump faced off last night against Joe Biden in the first US presidential debate, and it was anything but pretty. Brexit party leader Nigel Farage stayed up late to watch it, and we'll be getting his view on the punches landed. One thing's for sure, that Donald certainly spiced up the event with some hard-hitting attacks on Sleepy Joe, and his supporters loved it. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by Neil Oliver with his weekly take on the state we are in. He's got plenty to say about the students' hold up in their Glasgow dormitories with the new crackdown. Plus, we'll get the latest on the COVID 19 numbers from Dr. Wakar Rashid. And we'll be asking him how is it possible that one million women have missed out on breast cancer screening as a result of this ridiculous lockdown? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, what we have here is a US election build-up special after last night's debate in the state of uh, United States with Betfair. Let us have a listen uh, to one of the exchanges between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. Do you believe for a moment what he's telling you in light of all the lies he's told you about the whole issue relating to COVID? He still hasn't even acknowledged that he knew this was happening, knew how dangerous it was going to be back in February, and he didn't even tell you. He's on record as saying it. He panicked or he just looked at the stock market, one of the two, because guess what? A lot of people died, and a lot more are going to die unless he gets a lot smarter, a lot quicker. Mr. President, did you use the word smart? Uh, so you said you went to Delaware State, but you forgot the name of your college. You didn't <laughs> go to so. Delaware State. You graduated either the lowest or almost the lowest in your class. Don't ever use the word smart with me. Don't ever use that word. Oh, give me a break. Because you know what? There's nothing smart about you, Joe. There's nothing smart about you, Joe. I tell you what, that is going to stick. I wonder if you'll see that on a presidential uh, advertising slogan at one point between now uh, and the actual election date in November. Nothing smart about you. I think there's a song like that. Nigel Farage, of course, was up watching it uh, for US networks and uh, because he wanted to tell us what he made of it all. Nigel, a very good morning to you. Welcome. 
Good morning. Now, what's a tour de force? You know, I've woken up this morning. Uh, I hope you've had a chance to have a little bit of a, of a, of a breather or a nap of some kind. But, but the number of people talking about what a terrible spectacle it is, how the American people have lost out. This is exactly what the American people want to see, isn't it? Oh, yes. I mean, look, you know, proper head to head debates. They've been doing it ever since Kennedy versus Nixon. So for 60 years, they've been doing this. Uh, they have their own commission. Uh, that sets up these debates each time. And, of course, you know, we've had times here when prime ministers like Theresa May even refused to do public debates. Right. So the fact they're happening is, of course, a very good thing. Look, let's be frank. Last night was not the most edifying spectacle. Uh, we had two candidates who pretty much constantly talked over each other. Um, and that was a little bit disappointing. I thought on uh, content... Trump was incredibly strong on law and order and very good on the economy. Uh, and but in terms of style, you know, and I, I don't forget, I'm a friend of the president's. So I know him well. I almost think he was trying a bit too hard. Yeah, sure. He was punching, punching, punching. You know, Sleepy Joe's not smart. Uh, China had your lunch. I mean, there were some good lines in there. Yeah. There were some very good lines in there. But uh, the truth of it is that he should have just eased back a little bit because when Trump's at his best, he's got some very good comic timing. Mm. Uh, but you can't do that if you're rushing. So I feel the president tried a bit too hard. And being objective about it, even though Biden stumbled several times on numbers, couldn't quite put his sentences together, he didn't actually fall over. And given that the bar of expectation was so low for Biden, I mean, most people thought he couldn't stay awake for 90 minutes. Right. So, it, you know, let, let's be objective. It wasn't that bad a night for Biden. It wasn't that bad a night for Biden, but I still find it hard to see how it is that many of the pollsters have put him uh, as the winner of the election, of, of, the, of the debate, rather, because it doesn't seem to me that he actually made any great points. I mean, he did all the things that uh, those who are critical of President Trump would say. You know, he questioned his, his coronavirus policies. Yeah. Uh, he said loads of people had died. Um, he, he sort of pointed out that, that Donald Trump didn't pay any tax. He did all the stuff that we knew he would do. But what he didn't do was kind of say what he would do if he was in charge. No, I mean, there was nothing memorable from Biden whatsoever, uh, but it was a relatively safe performance, although he got rattled at one point and shouted, shut up, man, yes, yes. Trump, which, which I thought, well, OK. I mean, look, there are two more of these debates to go. I still think there's a very high likelihood in one of these debates that Biden just breaks down and mm. completely loses his train of thought and his thread. Uh, for now, I think what Trump needs to do is to reassess his style. I think, you know, interruption is great. All right. In free flowing debate, interruption is great. He perhaps just tried a bit too hard and did too much of it. But look, I think the most important issue in this election is law and order. All right. And Biden was asked about Black Lives Matter, the movement. Uh, and Chris Wallace, who chaired the debate, never really followed up never really got an answer on whether Biden supports the aims of BLM. Mm. And then we had the Antifa bit. All right. Now, you know, the president says Antifa are akin to a terrorist organization. I have to say I rather agree. And Biden said Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Mm. Which is plainly incorrect, right? 
Oh, I think we may have lost Nigel there for a second. We'll try and, we'll try and get Nigel back. He's just frozen on the screen there for a moment. Um, the basic kind of premise of this particular debate, and we talked about this yesterday with Sebastian Gorka, uh, was for President Trump to ensure, and he said one particular thing, which I thought resonated very much with those people who have seen Joe Biden as a career politician. He said, I've done more in 47 months than you've done in 47 years in Washington, D.C. And I think it's hard to argue uh, with that particular point of view. Uh, you've also had, of course, Joe Biden making accusations about Donald Trump, not um, kind of in some way diminishing and not condemning white supremacy. Um, and basically, Donald Trump pivoted away from that and made out that it was nothing to do uh, with white supremacy uh, or Black Lives Matter. It was actually to do with law and order in the cities of the United States, where the cities are, in fact, uh, on fire in many places, partly and entirely to do with the fact that they're run by democratic um, governments locally uh, who are very reluctant to crack down on the kind of left-wing activities that have caused an awful lot of the trouble. Uh, there's no question. Uh, he doesn't want to calm things down, said Joe Biden. He wants to pour gasoline on the fire. Uh, but when he was asked to condemn the white supremacist groups, Mr Trump said, sure, I'm willing to do that, but almost everything I see is from the left-wing. I'm willing to do anything. I want to see peace. And then um, Donald Trump was asked, you know, what do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a name. And, of course, that's one of the most contentious situations now in the United States of America, um, where the left and the right have become so divided that there is literally no common ground between any of them uh, that they can have, which is really, really unfortunate for those of us who love the United States of America, of which I'm obviously one of them, and as Nigel Farage is as well. We're trying to get Nigel back at the moment. He's still um, struggling with his, uh, uh, with his connection, but I think we're all set. Nigel, I don't know if you were able to hear much of what I was saying there, but um, interestingly, um, Joe Biden kind of didn't really go far enough, I think, for those people on, on the Republican side or those, you know, sort of floating voters, if you like, have, such as they are, to kind of condemn the actions of Antifa and the actions of the left, did he? No, no. As I say, he said Antifa is an idea, not an organisation. Well, let me tell you, Mike, I've seen Antifa mm. turn up at my meetings, threaten members of the public, and that's in this country. Yeah. This is deeply unpleasant violent organization and biden cannot condemn it he wasn't pushed hard enough i mean trump was pushed do you condemn far-right activism biden never was and that was the point of the debate where i felt chris wallace did not do a very good job but here's the point there's a large chunk of the activist base of the democrat party who support antifa and the black lives matter movement which by the way is completely different to racial equality and justice, all right? Yeah. And I think this is Biden's weak spot. And I, this is why I believe this election is won or lost in the middle-class suburbs of the big cities. People living there, and they're seeing two or three miles away from where they live, rioting, looting, shootings, shops being burnt down. And, and at the end of the day, you know, Bill Clinton years ago said it's the economy, stupid. There's mm. always one issue that emerges as the key election issue I think it's law and order. I believe that's Trump's chance to win. And anyone, anyone that looks back at that debate last night will see that Trump was at his most fluent on the issue of supporting police forces and defending law and order. Yeah. And so, you know, in performance terms, it was almost a score draw. But in, I think in content terms and in terms of setting out the agenda for the rest of the campaign, 
the Trump team will be very pleased with that. Mm. And just in terms of your own knowledge, Nigel, of the American electorate, how much do you think of the Trump vote uh, is in danger of falling away? Because people have said uh, to me in the past, as long as Trump holds his, his line and he gets the same vote out that he got out four years ago, he'll, he'll win. Well, look, you know, the hardcore base is what it is. Um, and probably the hardcore base of those that vote for Trump is 43%. All right? You know, they, they love him. And I mean, the more he punches Joe Biden, mm. I mean, they're cheering. They love it. They're pouring another beer. They're having a great time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you've got to get that swing vote that is there in the middle. Um, and, it's, and that is very much going to be among the middle classes. Uh, interestingly, where Trump is doing very well is with the Hispanic vote, mm. uh, you know, better than any Republican president has done in modern times. Uh, you know, I still I am still deeply suspicious of the polls. I think we've kind of reached a position in America where, you know, no one dares tell anybody they've got an even vaguely conservative mm. opinion, fear of being shouted down. So, you know, I still think uh, don't listen to those who tell you it's all over. Biden's going to win it. it. It's all done. It's not. Mm. I still think Trump will come through as the winner of this. I genuinely do. Yeah. And also we've got some vice presidential debates, which might prove to be quite interesting because I would suggest, and I don't know whether you'd agree, that, that, that Joe Biden's choice of vice presidential nominee is quite a volatile one. Well, she is. And, 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 and of course, if she tries to play the race equality card, uh, then it's not difficult for Mike Pence to point out that while she was a prosecutor, um, you know, out way west in California, uh, that it was under her watch that huge numbers of black people uh, were in prison for very, very lengthy sentences. Mm. You know, Pence is a known quantity. You know, Pence is naturally very conservative in every way, very Christian. You know, we know exactly what we're going to get from Mike Pence, and he's been a very, very reliable vice president for Donald for the last four years. Kamala Harris. Uh, none of us know. I mean, I tell you what, I've done these debates, Mike, all right? I've mm. done head-to-head -head debates with prime ministers, head-to-head -head debates with, um, with, with, with Nick Clegg um, a few years ago when he was deputy prime minister. And the truth is, you don't really know how good or bad anybody is until they're put in that environment. Yeah. And for Kamala Harris, this is a massive step up. It'll be a very interesting debate. And that's what's good about Donald Trump's performances in a way, because you're quite right to say that he could have been criticised after last night uh, for going in a bit too hard on Joe Biden. There were fears that that might make people feel a bit kind of sorry for him because, you know, it might have looked a bit like bullying. But on the other hand, um, Donald Trump's a master kind of performer, isn't he? I mean, don't forget, uh, this is a guy who made a fortune <laughs> on um, uh, yes. The Apprentice and he knows how to perform in front of a camera. So he can easily change his style, I would imagine, if he wishes to, for the next debate. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, you know, the idea that Trump was rude to Biden, Biden called him a clown and Biden called him a racist. And so, a liar. You know, uh, yeah, so there was a, there was a fair <laughs> bit of insult being thrown back yeah. in his direction. Look, I mean, remember four years ago when Hillary said, I would not want you, Donald J. Trump, in charge of our judicial system. Mm. Brief pause. And Trump said, yeah, because you'd be in jail. Now, that <laughs> was right. a genius moment. Yeah. Uh, but as with everything, whether it's making a serious point whether it's making a comic point, it's always about timing. And it's always about the slight use of the pause, all right? And when Trump does that, that's when you see why he was so good on reality television. That's mm. why you see he had hundreds of millions of dollars doing The Apprentice. And I felt last night, and, you know, and I'm a supporter, but I felt last night he was in a little bit too much of a rush. Mm. And I think he just needs to get back on his heels a bit more than his toes 
for next time round. Yeah, because you wrote a fascinating piece, I thought, yesterday in The Telegraph about Trump the man, who very often does not really get a look in, you know, because he's clearly, yeah. there's more to him. I mean, it's partly his own fault, I think, that he's treated like a sort of pantomime villain, because I think he quite likes that. But you were talking about the fact that he is genuinely helpful to people, you know, the the, 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 the sort of the, the loyal, not just Trump fans, but people in the police forces in America, in emergency yeah. service workers, the army. These people all love him. I have, you know, Mike, I have over the last decade and more uh, met many of the world's leaders. All right. And I've also watched those leaders interact with other politicians, with big businesses but I've also watched them interact with ordinary people. And I promise you that most people in global politics, and certainly most of the leaders in this country, if they do a quick walkabout and meet 20 members of the public, they get behind the door and say, oh, thank God that's over. Mm. Trump loves going out and meeting people. Right. You know, and, and, and some people may say it's cheap, but he'll compliment the woman on her dress or he'll compliment the guy for how fit he's looking. Um, and he makes them feel a million dollars. And I told a little story in the Telegraph yesterday. True story. It was early in his presidency. I was having dinner with him and his family in the Trump Hotel in DC. And a young waitress, she couldn't have been more than 22, 23, said to the president, I enjoyed your speech this morning. It was the annual conservative activist conference that goes on in DC or near DC every year. He looks at her and says, you were there this morning? She said, yes. He said, hey, call the manager. This lady's taking a break. And this waitress sat down next to the president of the USA and had his undivided attention for yeah. the next five or 10 minutes. Now, he didn't need to do that. There was no advantage for Trump in doing that, but he genuinely has an interest in people and he does have an extraordinary charisma and charm. Mm, absolutely right. And there was a man once who had the same abilities here in this country called Boris Johnson. Um, but I'm not sure quite what's happened to him. He's going to have a very tough day today. Let's just move back to the UK yeah. for a moment. Um, he's got a vote later <laughs> on, which he may lose, despite the fact that the Speaker is not allowing the amendment to be discussed. Uh, he's got a Prime Minister's Questions event with Keir Starmer, which he'll probably lose because he couldn't remember what the coronavirus rules were yesterday. And then he's got another one of these ghastly sort of Grim Brothers uh, media briefings with Valance and Witty. Um, who knows what we're going to be getting at the end of the day? Yeah, I, I mean, look, one of the main criticisms about Boris is that he doesn't do any detail. You know, he just does the big picture. Let's all be happy and jolly. Isn't mm. it wonderful? OK. And yesterday, unfortunately, he proved he doesn't do detail. And, and, and that is a stick with which Starmer, I suspect, at PMQs today, will beat him with very, very effectively. And I think behind the scenes in Downing Street this morning, they're going to be saying to the Prime Minister, for goodness sake, get a grip. Hmm. Because the impression that I'm getting, Mike, from all the, all the contacts I've got out in the shires, particularly, is they're losing confidence quite quickly. They like Boris Johnson, but it was said to me once that Boris is a brilliant non-executive chairman. He's a brilliant guy to go around, give speeches, meet people, you know, put around a bit of optimism, mm. but he's a terrible CEO because he doesn't make good decisions. And and he he has urgently got to prove that he can be the CEO of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I have to say, he needs to do this very, 
very quickly. And I think you've actually put your, your finger exactly on what the problem is. I mean, I'm one of the most optimistic people I know. And even I'm starting to wonder where the optimism is going to come from. And without optimism, we don't have anything. Yeah, that's right. And that's one thing Trump does rather well at times, isn't it? Mm. You know, he it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, let's huge. make it greater. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. You know, Boris, as you say, he's always been good at this. And when he was mayor of London, he was good at this. Yeah. Uh, but he looks he looks somewhat beaten down. That was yesterday. That was a dreadful, dreadful mistake to make. Uh, and he's going to have to work damned hard to get back credibility as a leader. And he's got to go in there. PMQs at midday today. He's got to be absolutely on top of his brief. Absolutely right. Well, listen, Nigel, thank you so much for uh, for doing what you did, which was to stay up very, very late to, uh, into the early hours of this morning to watch that first presidential debate. The second one's going to be fascinating as well. Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit Party, thank you uh, very much indeed. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio, the race to the White House with Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Bet on the U.S. election with Betfair with odds that reflect the race in real time. Odds speak louder than words. 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. You're listening to a U.S. election build-up special after last night's debate in the States with Betfair, of course. Now, Donald Trump and Joe Biden faced off for the first time in Cleveland. Chris Wallace from Fox has been accused of losing control of the debate and turning it into uh, what they love to call this in America, a dumpster fire. Now, let's have a listen uh, to Joe Biden accusing Donald Trump of being unpresidential. The issue is the American people should speak. You should go out and vote. You're in voting now. Vote and let your senators know how you strongly you feel. Let vote now. Are you pack the Make court? sure you, in fact, let people know you're senators. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you that because question? the you question is the question is the radical question, left. Will you who shut is up, on, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so right. Gentlemen, is, I think this we've is ended so this. He's going to pack the court. We have end, no, not no. Give a list. We have ended this segment. We're going to move on to the second segment. That was really a productive segment, wasn't it? <laughs> Keep yapping, man. The people understand, Joe. <laughs> they sure 47 do. years, you've Joe, done nothing. They understand. Oh, All right. 47 years is a big refrain from Donald Trump. He basically has been saying that for 47 months, he's done more uh, than Joe Biden has done in 47 years. Also, a kind of interesting, isn't it, and slightly disingenuous, you might say, uh, for Joe Biden to call President Trump unpresidential after telling him to shut up. Let's hear about their policies to combat COVID-19. You've got to provide these businesses the ability to have the money to be able to reopen with the PPE as well as with the sanitation they need. You have to provide them plastic. Tell that to Nancy Pelosi. Well, he's just shush for a minute. Tell it to Nancy Pelosi and and Schumer. By the way, Nancy Pelosi and Schumer, they have a plan. He (laughs) won't even meet with them. The Republicans won't meet in okay. the Senate. And he, and he sits he sits on his golf course. And, well, I mean, nah. literally, okay. think about it. You probably right, play more than it. I do, Joe. Uh, oh. What about this question <laughs> of reopenings and the fact... Well, he wants to shut down this country. Oh. And I want to keep it open. And we you did get, a great thing by shutting it down. Shut it down. Wait a minute, Joe. Let, let me shut you down for a second, Joe, just for one second. <laughs> we want to... He wants to shut down the country. We just went through it. We had to because we didn't know anything about the disease. Now, if you ask me, and not anybody has yet, surprisingly, I think Trump actually won this debate. Some people will say Joe Biden won the debate. I don't see how anyone could look at that 
exchange or any of the other exchanges and think that Joe Biden won. You may have a different view. Let's have a listen uh, to when they jousted about the extreme right and the extreme left. Repeatedly criticized the, the vice president for not specifically calling out Antifa and other left wing right. extremist groups. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups sure. and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland? Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing not from the right so wing. So what, what, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right boys. Who would you like me to condemn? White supremacists and right boys. Proud boys, stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right-wing problem. His this is a left-wing problem. This is a left-wing problem. White supremacist. Antifa's an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it, Not malicious. That's what oh, his right. it's an idea. FBI... His okay. FBI director Gentlemen, said. Well, then, you know what? No, no, we're done, we're done, sir. Everybody, we're moving on to the next. We're moving on to the next. That's not an idea. Everybody Antifa in your administration tells you the truth is a, is a bad idea. Can I tell you what? You have no idea. Antifa, Antifa is a dangerous, radical All right, gentlemen, group. we're now moving on to the Trump and, and Biden records. We are also moving on to the next segment here at Talk Radio because we have finished with round one uh, of Biden versus Trump. I'm scoring it uh, for Trump. I'm saying he won by a narrow points defeat to Joe Biden, uh, who really didn't make any sense at all, as far as I could see, about what his policies would be if he ever got to the White House. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah, and under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm not going to make the same mistake I made last week, but luckily, because we had no uh, Perrier Awards because of the events of last Friday, uh, I wasn't shown up to be a complete and utter numpty who didn't know what day of the week it was. Because I know what day of the week it is, right? It's Wednesday. And that's when we speak to Neil Oliver. Neil, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning, mate. Good to see you again. Yeah, nice to see you too. I was uh, intrigued by the end of your uh, column in the Sunday Times um, at the weekend in which you were kind of casting your eyes towards the north and saying winter is coming. And I thought it was kind of a chilling thought because with all the things that are going on, particularly in Scotland uh, with the lockdown and, and increasingly down here as well, you know, I mean, it's almost like you want to say all sorts of things like, you know, the only thing to fear is fear itself and all sorts of important quotes. But but it's a it's still a bit of a worrying time. Nobody knows what's going on. Oh, it's definitely worrying that uh, I use that winter is coming line, you know, deliberately echoing the kind of air of uh, trepidation and fear in, in Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> People not knowing what was coming from behind, from beyond the wall. But I think... The fact that the uh, that the pandemic so far and all of the lockdown and whatever has has unfolded during the, the hours of daylight, mm. you know, the, the long spring and the summer, which was pretty kind. It certainly was. It was good weather up here, yeah. uh, but it's a whole different game to play uh, in the long dark of winter, uh, and we feel that particularly in, in Scotland. You know, the, the nights are a bit longer up here once we we get properly into autumn and then. Uh, winter mm. uh, and, uh, and of course it's the traditional season of uh, colds and flus and all the rest uh, and how how is that going to muddy the waters uh, of all the restrictions and all the uh, anxieties around COVID-19 mm. uh, it's a completely different playing field winter in Britain in Scotland and uh, I just have a, a an air of anxiety that I feel ramping up uh as I wonder what the, the, the dark days of winter are, are going to deliver mm. for us. Yeah, exactly right. And also, as I've been saying for a while, without a kind of roadmap out of the tunnel or out of whichever dark place we now find ourselves in, it's very hard to be optimistic. Uh, as much as I'm an optimist, as I've said before many times, it's quite difficult if you, the, your political kind of leaders don't appear to know where to go next. It's hard to kind of believe in them, really. I think they've almost and possibly have cross the Rubicon, so to speak. Mm. Uh, the, the, the position that they've adopted, you know, those, when I say they, I mean the, the authorities, government, uh, the, you know, the, the, the scientists that are advising them, the, the civil servants that are, that are applying the rules. I think, I feel as if they're on the other side of the river mm. from a majority of the people. Uh, and the, and the, the faith and the trust is, is being lost if, if it hasn't been lost altogether. Yeah. And I feel when you talk about optimism, and I'm I'm desperate to be optimistic as well. Uh, and I think for, for a start, I think anyone with a you know I've got a, a young family, and yeah. you know you've got to, you've got to be optimistic because you, the kids are asking questions about what does this mean or what does that mean. And so I do. I look back and and I, and I think about the experiences that, I've, that I have had with dealing with with people looking to traditional winter. Uh, I, I made a documentary years ago which involved filming in Orkney. And an encounter that I had with a with a woman there, an older woman, has always lived in my memory. Her surname was Flett, which is mm. a good uh, which is a good name from, from that part of the world. And I said to her, just conversationally, how do you deal with the with the long nights of of the winter up here in the in the far north? We're in Orkney, and she smiled and she said that she loved it, and her family loved it because the darkness was a time when they when they all came together with mm. their wider family, and it was about lights on and candlelight. And doing things together as a family with the you know with the dark and the heavy weather you know blowing its heart out yeah. beyond the walls, so it was a time it was a time when they reached out to, to family very intensively, and I, and I think about that in the context of people being told at the moment you're not mixing households that you can't mix the generations, 
And I think that the, the lesson was there with that, with that lady in Orkney, that they took a, a huge strength from one another. And I think somehow we have to find ways in which to do that. I, even, I mean, I look back as well, as an archaeologist, uh, Stonehenge, obviously, is one of the iconic uh, archaeological mm. sites in Britain. And there, the evidence increasingly is that it was a focus for people in winter. There was a, a nearby settlement, which Durrington Walls, it's called by archaeologists, and we know that people were coming there in large numbers in the winter, and they were bringing uh, pigs, particularly, and slaughtering them at the end of the year, mm. and obviously having big feasts. and And they were also bringing their dead people, who, the, the remains of people who had died during the year, and they brought them to Stonehenge at that dark time of the year and, and interred the bones or the cremated remains. And it was all about a gathering together against the dark with fire with food and fundamentally with each other. Mm. And I think governments and authorities are playing a dangerous, dangerous game psychologically and socially if they take steps in the winter that divide people. Mm. Because we know that for hundreds and for thousands of years, people have drawn great comfort and great energy from one another. Yes, And there have to be ways in which we're able to do that, not through computer screens, not virtually, but we have to find ancient, back to the ways of coming together in the warmth and sharing stories and getting through the dark times and looking forward to the days lengthening again. Yes. It's, it's, it's primeval stuff. I think it is because, you know, you'd think back even to the days of the castles and, you know, King Henry VIII and the Tudors and all of them. And the, the focal point of every community was was the was the castle, wasn't it? It was where everybody either lived in or lived around. And all of those things you mentioned, you know, fire, people, food, these are all the things that sustain life. And the government appears to be trying to stop all of the things that sustain life, which can only lead to one thing. And strangely, in the past, really right up into we, what we would consider the modern era, the, the doings of kings or rulers or government that was remote, it didn't really impinge on people's lives. Mm. You know, they wouldn't always know who the king was, you know, if, if word of his name or, or whatever hadn't filtered down to whatever isolated hamlet they happened to live in. And so people depended upon those that they saw every day and they, and they ran themselves. And, they, and they, you know, they, they governed themselves or they looked to a local uh, dominant figure for direction. And I think, bizarrely, the government in this time of so much interconnectedness and so many means of communication, they're, they're making themselves increasingly irrelevant to people's lives because the things that they are saying, people, too many people are interpreting what they're being told as stuff they can't use. Mm. And it's not because they want to cause trouble and spread infection or and do all these things that people are increasingly being accused of, of doing. It's simply because people have lives to get on with. And the longer this, you can't have a state of emergency that lasts for month after month, year after year. Eventually, however frightened people were, they have to turn again to their own local priorities. And I, I predict that's what's going to happen. That the more you know authoritarian the rules seek to become, the, Perversely or conversely, the more people will have to have, will have no alternative but to turn their backs on it. Yes. And winter's, winter's going to be a testing time because winter's difficult emotionally. You know, people who people who struggle a bit emotionally and with you know with depression and, and whatever, and just the general stress and strains of life. Winter's a challenge anyway. Right. Well, it's, I mean, it's one thing as well to have these COVID marshals who we're actually now seeing more and more out and about. 
looking uh, down the street to see whether you're not meeting up with too many people. But are they really going to start peering through people's letterboxes and, you know, peering as the face at the window in the local village and looking into your lounge to see who's in there? Indeed, I never thought to see the day uh, when there would be such a, a sense, you know, you know, when you're raised in a community that has, you know, policing by consent, you know, where you have the social contract, you know, where people consent to be governed, where people uh, consent to be policed, because, you know, the police are part of the community and part of society. And, and by police, you know, now there's you know, new authority figures in the form mm. of uh, the COVID wardens. I never thought to see the day when there would be such a sense of them and us, yeah. which is so, unf I mean, you know, the, I've had, you know, I've had, I've had encounters with the police in the past. I've needed the help of police for, you know, for various reasons. And, you know, I've always been very, you know, been very, I've, I am fond and supportive of the police. And I think they've been put in an invidious uh, position at the moment, but, but this, this degree of them and us that's unfolding, and you can already hear it in the, at the moment, it's jokey chat amongst people, it feels as if you know to, if, if you wanted to if you wanted to mix across the generations and mix households, it's going to be like you know smuggling people in the boots of cars. Between yeah. The but West you know what? I mean, the more the, the, yeah, but it is it is. But the more people I talk to, um, the more people I find are less willing than the, the last time around to do it. You know, and I said this a few weeks ago, if they try and put in a second lockdown, I just don't think people will do it. And what I've seen, um, and I know it's troubling for a lot of hospitality places and restaurants and, and pubs because people are not going there because they don't want to download this app because they don't think it works. They don't trust it. You know, so that's a problem. But I think more and more people are very willing to break these rules, because as we found out yesterday from Boris Johnson, even he doesn't know what they are. I don't. I, I can't. I can't keep up. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm quite busy at the moment, and so I, I certainly can't set aside hours of every day to try and see what the latest um, variation on the on the spin yeah. is, what the what the what the latest rule is. Uh, you know, but I, I do know that people are absolutely of a, increasingly of a mind that we we went into the last lockdown with with open hearts and open minds, yeah. and there was a there was a relatively simple message that was explained that you know we can't have everyone getting ill and maybe dying all at the same time. So let's spread it out. But the assumption was, if you thought about it, that people were, were going to die, but just not all in the one day. It right. was going to be spread out over in, into the distant future and not to overwhelm the NHS. And people got that and they complied. But now that, that with that mission having been accomplished, the fact that, they're that the, the authorities are seeking to apply lockdown yet again with a completely different objective in mind, understandably, many, many people are thinking, well, were we sold a pup the last time? Mm. You know, we flattened the curve. We didn't overwhelm the NHS, but we're still contemplating, goodness knows, another kind of lockdown. And so that doubt sets in at that point. Yeah, it does. And doubt is very insidious. Once doubt is there and once the, once the faith is gone, then the, the more it's just like watching the government now is just like watching somebody at the roulette wheel that's lost a ton of money. And yeah. rather than walk away from the table, just keeps on heaping more right. and more chips onto the same numbers. And it's, right. Except, except the problem for us, Neil, is that they're asking us for the money to keep going. And they're saying, you know, I've got a plan. I've got this new strategy. I'm going to change it now and I'm going to do this. And you go, well, hang on, that's the same as the strategy you had last time when you lost all the money. Uh, and you can keep, I mean, I suppose the, the analogy is almost like a, it's like a captive herd. You know, if you've got, if you've got the animals in the barn and they're, and they're not allowed out, um, and you can't keep milking them in the same way. And so, you know, people are, are being asked to some, they're still being taxed, they're still having to pay their way, they're still paying, you know, council tax and income tax and all the rest of mm. these 
that flow of, of money that's required to keep the state running. Uh, but uh, at the same time, those people aren't being allowed out to, you know, to take the energy that they need to keep producing the milk that's been taken from them uh, by the government to, to circulate out into the wider society. You have to let the herd out into the green fields, to, to, you know, to rejuvenate mm. from time to time. You can't just keep them in the barn and keep milking them. No. Well, exactly. And I thought of you this morning, funnily enough, I was on the tube, um, which I've started to use again just because the roads are so crazily busy, really. Um mm. And everyone's wearing a mask. And I know that London commuters are not famous for speaking to one another, but there's literally no conversation going on now at all. Nobody's talking to anybody else. They're all getting on the escalator. And as I was going up the escalator, there were all these signs that said, be kind, right? And I just mm-hmm. thought, how ironic is that, right? Nobody's talking to one another. We're told to be kind under pain of death. And I thought of that famous uh, 1984 movie with John, I think it was John Hurt years ago, you know, where they're all sort of being told what to do by Big Brother. And it's starting to feel like that. Where you've got, you know, we've talked about this before, where you have a situation that can only work if people are coerced. Mm. I keep on on hearing uh, people on, on television at the moment using the word compliance. Uh, that, that's one that's crept into the vocabulary now, which I find I find that sinister. You know, that, that always makes me think about that big robot in, in Robocop 1. You yeah. know, you have 10 seconds to comply, mm. uh, and, you know, before the machine guns open fire. And where you have to keep people, where you have to enforce a system by intimidation and different levels of fear and, and even possibly the threat of, you know, in, imprisonment and, and all the rest of it, that that's not going to work for people. And you have to you have to allow for the way in which people left to their own devices actually relate to one another, and and, and the circumstances under which people find ways to be kind to one another. Yeah, and they're they're messing with they're forgetting we're forgetting what people actually are like. You know, I've written I've written just recently about the fact that although it's been you know two hundred thousand years of our species, and we've got all the all the modern trappings around us. We're essentially physiologically and cognitively the same creatures that we were two hundred thousand years ago. Mm. You know, we're still running hunter software on our on our poor little brains, and it's we're still needing each other. This is the thing: we are social creatures. We come together naturally in tribes, in clans, in families, quite small groups. You know, we don't usefully work with more than about one hundred and fifty people, according mm. to you know, some other writers. And, but if you if you deny people that this this, this separation of, of people into frightened individuals or just mum dad and a couple of kids isolated in their houses, you compromise the integrity of the species itself. We cannot live like this, and people understand that there's an abiding threat in the form of the virus, mm. but they've also internalised the, the blatant reality that it's not going to go away. And the fact that the, the that scientists and the authorities have, have the, the vanity and the hubris to suggest that if we let them do whatever they want for a period of time, they can fix it completely, make it go away. Well, too many people have realised that the virus isn't going to go away. It's going to be here like the flu. And even if there is a vaccine in the future, there will be a vaccine, maybe a different one every year, and it'll have a certain effect. But people will still catch COVID like they catch everything else, and some people will die. Mm. And if they've set a precedent now where if there are any infections, any cases of COVID in the future that they have to lock us down, then that is that's a, that poses a profound threat to society itself. Yes. 
and, and, by, can't, and, and they could... can't and they can't keep just saying be kind well all the measures that they're trying to bring in uh, are making the exact opposite effect so that you can't be kind to anybody because you can't see anybody and you can't you go can't... and see your parents or your children uh, or your uncles or your aunties you know it's ridiculous what does kindness even mean? You can't make kindness something else that you have to... You can't make being kind some another rule that you have to obey. Yeah. People are instinctively kind. It's not, it's not something that you can legislate for. You can't, have, you can't say, and now are the five minutes today when everyone has, is compelled to be kind. That's just, that's just farcical. I know. And you, you, cannot, uh, the, you can't just make people... All of the people, all of the time, prioritise the same single risk. You know, if your house is burning down and you're standing in it and someone's shouting from the window outside, this year's flu is a very bad one. Mm. Your, your priority is still the fact that your house is burning down. Right. You, you may, at some point in the short to medium future, pay attention to the fact that the flu is bad this year. But people have their, have their own priorities, their own, you know, making a living, paying the mortgage, meeting the rent looking after elderly parents, seeing to, you know, children that are going through some kind of, you know, serious emotional anxiety. And they they have to prioritise different things at different times. And this increasingly authoritarian attempt to make everyone make COVID the number one priority 100% of the time is a fool's errand. Yeah. And I'm seeing more and more criticism of Nicola Sturgeon, Neil, from sometimes surprising places, people that I know personally and other people that I know on, on social media who are... Uh, supporters of independence, perhaps, but have even now decided that she's going too far because we see Scotland as even more draconian now than the rest of the country. Well, the the, the debacle over the over the universities was just um, was was breathtaking. Mm. I would have thought that with without, I think um, the first minister and, and and those around her they get they get treated differently than say Boris and his the people around him get treated. Although broadly speaking, they are applying the same strategy based on the same uh, pr- preferred version of science. You know, there isn't there isn't really a, a Rizla cigarette paper to, to slip between the, the, the tactics, really. No. Uh, and the numbers the numbers have always been bad in Scotland, and the number of care home deaths were always bad. Uh, but there's been a very lenient approach uh, to to the government here, as opposed to the way that most of the mainstream media has has treated the you know the, the, the government in in Westminster. But I, but I think because of what happened over the uh, the students and the universities, that um, that veil, that, that that optical illusion, has been sort of stripped away. It's, you know, it's like in the Wizard of Oz when they see the you know the, the little man behind the curtain, yeah. and, and the reality of the situation has become much more apparent. And it's that it's that COVID is broadly speaking doing here what it has done everywhere else in the country. No one's in control of it. No. Uh, it's just that some people have had a have had a, a better. Uh, view cast on their treatment of the situation than than others uh, but i think finally the rising the rising water of inevitability has finally reached um you know nicola sturgeon's shoes as well the plimsoll line has been breached yeah what about uh, your kids at school what are they being told because some of the kids down here are being told prepare uh, to go home again because we're going to shut the school down well, that's always been out there. That that uh, that phantom was there really from the from the day and hour that they went back to school six whatever it is six weeks ago now. Uh, I have to say, our you know, our kids are all at a, a state high school here in Stirling, and it's been great. The feedback that we hear via the, what the, what the, what those the teachers are saying to our kids and what the kids are repeating to us, 
you know, they are a very uh, positive, pragmatic law in our school. Um, and we've been, you know, we've been very reassured by what they've been being told. But it's matters, we understand also that it's matters out of, out of the control of the school and the, the, the possibility of what they call blended learning. We know that preparations are being made again in case they need to move to blended learning, as they call it, which is, well, however, might be, you know, you're, you're only at school two weeks in four or one week right. in four and the rest of it would be home schooling. Our kids are, are, are as anxious about the, the future as everybody else. Uh, my, my eldest is, would be looking to, to university next year um, and still is, but it's shrouded in, in uncertainty. Mm. And you know, she looked on at what happened to the, to the intake this year with, with horror at what unfolded in the, in the universities at Glasgow and, right. and in Edinburgh. Um, and then my, my, young, my boys are, are younger, but you know, they're so aware. And it, it is quite heartbreaking looking on at it because I remember being, as you do, being 12 and being 14 and being 17. Uh, and I'm in amongst all the things that I might have been having to deal with as a as a young adolescent or a young adult at that time, there was nothing like this. No. And I feel very strongly uh, that the, the the kids, the the younger people, the younger generation, what they need is some sense that it will that there will be an end. You know, people talk about an exit strategy, and that it's so vital. I think that that the younger generation can see that there's a a normal, and I don't mean a new normal. I mean a normal normal. Yeah. <laughs> Getting back to being able to see your friends, go on holiday, uh, you know, play in the park, you know, meet in each other's houses, that kind of normal, the, the normal that is normal. Not new normal. I, new normal, I refuse to use that expression apart from when I'm talking to you just now. Yeah. That's an abomination to me. Yeah. There, there is no new normal. There's only normal. And we yeah. all know what it looks like, and it's not this. It really isn't, no. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Neil, thank you very much, as ever. Neil Oliver, uh, archaeologist, TV presenter. The normal normal is what we want. I think we've just coined a new phrase for the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get back to a normal normal. Let's do it. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Let's go to the phones, though. Carol is in Southampton and wants to tell me a story. Carol, a very good morning to you. Hello. Hello, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. Tell me uh, what you called up about. Yeah, I've actually called up because I've um, I've had ocular melanoma uh, in the eye, which was actually caused by um, spraying perfume. Well, it wasn't caused by it, but I sprayed perfume accidentally in my eye. I was going to work, okay. and I just left it. And then a couple of um, a couple of days later, I took myself to the hospital, and they could see that there was something at the back of the eye. It was like a, a tumor. Um, so uh, I got sent to Liverpool and basically I was told my eye had to be removed the following day. Goodness. The next day, it was, it, it, you know, it was awful. Um, it, it was ocular melanoma. Uh, they told me five, five years on I was cancer-free and they actually told me that, um, that it could travel to the liver, um, which uh, five, five years on it has travelled there. Mm. Um, and... Basically, in February, I had a liver resection where they took away 14% of my liver. Right. And that that left me that it was all clear again. And three months after that, I got taken uh, back for a scan. And it, had, it was traveling in my blood. Right. So, um, so basically, again, I was in the same situation. So a liver resection wasn't possible. So what they decided to do was put me and was uh, recommend the Delcas Malfalon treatment, which is a trial drug. Okay. And this trial drug would be, would potentially save my life. Um, now, the problem is they said 
this is what, what is good for you, but the National Health has taken it off. Um, they've just halted it. Right. Um, so, so you can't it, get it? I can't get it, no. So I've had to go privately and pay £40,000 per treatment. Wow. And I'm just an ordinary working girl, you know. I, I've, you know, I've, I've not got that kind of money. Mm. Um, so, so how are you? So how are you managing to do that, Carol? Are you able to work? Uh, no, no, I can't work at the moment. Sorry. Right. Um, no, I'm not able to work. Um, basically, um, I've, you know, I've had to um, to go fund me page. My son Adam has set that up for me, okay. Adam Player, and um, it's all about now trying to raise the funds. And okay. I've actually cashed in all my pensions at the age of 57, which I shouldn't really have had to. Mm. Um, and uh, that funded the first treatment. I'm now on my second treatment, which has been funded by the GoFundMe, okay. thanks to the general public and to my family and friends. Um, however, I've still got third and fourth treatments to come up, mm. and we're now fearful that we may have to lose our house. And how many treatments do they think you might need? They said it could be three, it could be four. Okay. You know, so uh, it's one hundred and sixty thousand pounds. We just haven't. You can't pluck that out of thin no, air. Of course not. You know, I'm absolutely mortified mm. to be honest. And this is all as a result of the NHS basically shutting down. Then. Yes, that's right. Yes, mm. they just halted it. No, no reason. You know, it was just halted, and I just felt that my life had gone. You know, and mm. I said to my friend, "It's game over," and she says, "No." She says, "Well, we'll do a GoFundMe." And I know. It's a shocking thing that's happened, Carol. I mean, how are you actually feeling in terms of your own health? Are you able to um, I function? I feel very well. I feel I feel well in myself. It's just the fact that I know without this treatment, I will die. Yeah. I mean, I can't. You know, I've got a lot to live for. I've got my family. I've got twin grandsons, identical three-year-olds. And I just need to be here. Yeah, of course. I need to stay alive. Do you want to tell us what the GoFundMe page is, Carol, so we can send yes, people there? Yes, certainly. Thank you. It's Carol Player. Right. Um, so it's, 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 if they put in Carol Player, P-L-A-Y-E-R, right. and it's all on there. But I, I appreciate any help that anybody gives okay. me. And if, and if you thought, if you're able to, Carol, maybe ask your son to to reach out to us on Twitter, perhaps, and we can maybe yes, uh, send the link definitely. out as well for you because it's that, a terrible story. Be, Mike, it'd be fantastic if we could do that because okay. I just think I've come to a dead end, and I, I've come this far. I've, I've, I've scraped the barrel with all the money we've got, and you know, I've got to get the third and fourth treatment, otherwise. I'm 57. I'm not ready to go anywhere yet. No, of course. With the help of everybody, and I really mean everybody, it's keeping me here, and I'll be forever grateful. And if I can help somebody one day, I would be the first to do that. Carol, you're a very brave woman. We'll do what we can to help you, okay? And and thank Thank you so much for calling us. And keep in touch with us as well, if you can, Carol, okay? We'll do, definitely. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate this call. Thank Thank you. you. Carol in Southampton there. I mean, what a story. This is what's happening uh, to people. It's absolutely disgraceful, isn't it? Terrible. The NHS needs to be open. It needs to be open for business. It needs to be open for people like Carol. What an awful thing to have to go through. And what a brave woman. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. I just want to say a big thank you, by the way, to people who have uh, donated to um, Carol's 
GoFundMe page. She was on the phone to us around about an hour or so ago uh, about what a terrible uh, dilemma she finds herself in. She's trying to get life-saving treatment uh, for cancer and the NHS basically is unable to help her because of the lockdown. She's having to go private, which costs about £40,000 per treatment. She's had two. Uh, she needs three or four in order to save her life. She actually said on this radio station she didn't want to die. She's only 57. Well, I'm amazed and, and really, really just impressed to say that so many of you have contributed to her GoFundMe page that it's now uh, got about £10,000 more than it had an hour ago. Um, so do keep passing it round. Many of you sending it to Matt Hancock and to Boris Johnson as well. I think they need to see this story because I think it really is a very important indication of how wrong things are going uh, when it comes to the way that the NHS is able to operate uh, during the pandemic. But uh, we'll keep you updated with all the news on that as it happens. Right now, though, it is that time of the day, just after the news at 12.30. Prime Minister's question is still ongoing, uh, but we're going to get some more uh, and finally more interesting questions, actually, uh, with Tom Whipple, who is, of course, science editor at The Times, author of a book called Get Ahead in Physics, because, Tom, today's question on homeschooling is what is static electricity? Very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Hello. Hello. Now, you've been very good and, and, and kind to spend a lot of time with us in the past explaining uh, some quite complex scientific um, situations uh, in layman's terms, uh, things that, that, that even people like me can understand, including some children's um, versions of events. Tell us what static electricity is. Well, I mean, static electricity is um, the, the simple clue is in the name. It's elect electricity that stands still. Um, so we are more familiar with the idea of the normal electricity in your light bulbs, which you switch on a switch, electrons move around a circuit and impart their energy and make things work. Mm. Um, obviously, our ancestors would have been far more familiar with static electricity, uh, which still involves electrons, but in a very different way, and was in fact first noticed, or at least first written down, by a Greek in 600 BC who spotted that if you rubbed amber, it would pick things up. Huh. So it works uh, because of, well, we need to know about the structure of the atom again. So in every atom of everything, you've got a central, uh, relatively very heavy nucleus that has positively charged things in called protons. And then whizzing around the outside, you have electrons that weigh almost nothing and are negatively charged. And what happens with, with static electricity is you just get a buildup of electrons. Normally in an atom, in a normal substance, there's the same number of negatively charged things as positively charged things. And so there's no charge. It doesn't attract things. It doesn't repel things. But when you rub something, um, which is able to lose its electrons easily and is also a good electrical insulator, um, such as a comb or a uh, rubber balloon, then it'll transfer some of those electrons out and it'll maybe they'll accumulate on the wall or someone else. It doesn't particularly matter. But suddenly it gets attracted to things that are neutrally charged because it's got this negative charge. Mm. And that's why you can stick uh, rubber balloons on the wall. It's why your hair goes crackly in the dark after you've been combing it. That's, that's the static electricity discharging itself, all those electrons uh, whizzing out like lightning, in fact, exactly like lightning, which is probably the most dramatic form of static electricity we can see. Um, and uh, that's, that's what happens. So it's electricity that stands still. Yeah, we've all done the old uh, balloon on the wall trick, even if it's just to impress uh, some very young children who then look at you as if you're some kind of god of electricity. But, but it doesn't last long, does it? It sort of hangs there for a bit and then it falls off. 
Yeah, I mean, they're going to want to lose these electrons. Um, things don't particularly like to be charged. So some of them are going to go into the wall. They're going to be lost lost to the air. They're going to be, I mean, if you have it at a dramatic, a dramatic example, as I say, is lightning. So these are clouds that they rub. So you, you rub the balloon on your jumper, but a cloud sort of rubbing in itself. It's got ice particles that are bouncing up and down. And it's building up this big, big, big charge. And eventually it has to lose it. Nature doesn't like it at all. And in the case of the, the cloud, obviously, it, it, it loses it by discharging a whole bunch of electrons to the ground. Um, but, uh, yeah, your, your balloon will find ways to get rid of this. It's, it's not going to be right. perfectly sticking to the wall indefinitely. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've all, again, been in that situation where you're either in a hotel room or in an office uh, or sometimes in your own house and you go to put your hand on the doorknob and it suddenly sparks but it doesn't happen everywhere. So is that to do with the carpet? Is it to do with what it's made of? I think uh, cheap quality um, plastic carpets mixed with <laughs> air conditioning that keeps things nice and dry. Yeah. And then the rubber soles of your shoes rubbing along them. Yeah, so if you've got decent Persian carpets, this isn't going to happen. No. Um, but if, if you're in a Holiday Inn Express, it probably is. Or leather-soled shoes. I hope you're not casting aspersions on my hotels of choice. But, I mean, <laughs> the funny thing, of course, as well, is that um, in terms of electricity which which kind of can't be kept anywhere i've I've always been puzzled whenever i speak to to people about power and about why we can't sort of do better with our electricity storage that nobody's really properly invented a way of storing it you know you have to kind of keep recharging a battery or you know you can't really just put it somewhere for use later on yeah i mean this is this is the biggest question in technology almost at the moment is how do you store batteries better yeah um so uh, the energy density of petrol, if you imagine it as just a store of energy, mm. is I, I think something like 80 or 90 times a lithium, the best lithium-ion battery. And if you want to know why uh, we still have petrol cars on the road, that's the reason. So we need to find better batteries that are, have a higher density charge, and there are loads of people looking at it. And in batteries, what they do to... They, they, they don't actually move electrons. They move um, ions of lithium, so charged particles of lithium that go from one side of the battery to the other and build up, and then you can discharge electrons from another side that whiz round to complete the, uh, the ion and make it not charged, and then uh, you do the same in reverse. But, mm. uh, yeah, look, that's, that's sort of a form of static electricity in that you are storing charge within... Uh, chemical in a battery uh, but we need to get better at it it's, yeah. it's, it's a big big problem and i don't know if you can answer this question if it even is worth asking but is static electricity ac or dc um i suppose you'd say it's dc um it's not really you know it, it, it it's not moving um so dc current is electrons all going around one wire in one direction, whereas AC current, which is what you get out of a power station, it goes backwards and forwards, swish, 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 swish. Um, and static electricity is staying still. But given it doesn't change, if you had to choose one, I'd choose DC. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, is static electricity a good thing, I suppose, would be the final question? Or is it something that we just have to live with, whether it's good or not? I mean, it's it's sort of just a law of nature that's there, and we've got to live with it. It, it, it is big problems um, in microelectronics if people, because we all gather charges as we go about, um, and if you're touching delicate circuit boards, that can be a, a really big problem. Um, it can be problems in in refueling aircraft. You can end up 
creating static electricity then and setting the tanks on fire. So it generally causes us problems, no. um, but there's not much we can do about it. No. Well, it's a fascinating subject. I, I, I quite like electricity. I quite like talking about it because I don't really understand it at all. But Tom, thank you very much indeed. Tom Whipple, uh, author of Get Ahead in Physics, also, of course, science editor at the Times newspaper. Uh, always got interesting stories to tell. Uh, Tom Whipple, thank you very much once more. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.